ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When Richard Flanagan was in his early 20s, he would take groups of kayakers to explore the majesty of Tasmania's Franklin River. On one of those expeditions, Richard's kayak was caught in a current, taken over a drop, and the nose of his kayak was wedged under a rock ledge, which kept him trapped for hours as torrents of river water kept cascading and pounding on his head. It's only now, four decades later, that Richard Flanagan has been able to write about the strangeness and the torment of those hours when he felt for a while that he was leaving life behind him and that he would drown in that wilderness. Richard is, of course, one of the greatest writers Australia's ever produced. His new book, called Question 7, is a mix of memoir and history and fiction and a loving recreation of the Tasmania of his parents. I spoke with Richard at Hobart's Theatre Royal in front of a large and lively hometown crowd. I'm going to give away the title straight away, Question 7. It comes from one of Chekhov's earliest stories, and it's a parody of a maths questionnaire, and Question 7 is typical in this list of absurd questions. Wednesday, June 17, 1881, a train had to leave Station A at 3am in order to reach Station B at 11pm. Just as the train was about to depart, however, an order came that the train had to reach Station B by 7pm. Now, who loves longer, a man or a woman? (laughs) When I read that, it looked to me like the kind of exercise comedy writers do, to sort of get you in the right mood, to write something that's absurd and a kind of thing that frees the imagination from the boring tyranny of logic. What did you read into Question 7, Richard? I stumbled on it in the 90s. There was a, a book of Chekhov's earlier stories, which he, he just wrote for money to keep his family going. He was poor, they were poor, and he was just writing comic sketches. And yet in those three sentences, you have the genius of Chekhov. And his, his vision was always both comic and tragic. And uh, his greatest plays, he always felt, should be played as comedies, not tragedies. And what I loved about that story is you go from what appears to be the, a world of reality and a world of the, the sensible and practical things, the surface world, and suddenly he makes this leap that's utterly illogical into actually what matters to us. Who, who loves longer? Why do we live? How to live? And really, in those three sentences, you have every Chekhov story because they all begin with these descriptions of a surface life, of a a woman at a dinner party, a man on the make in a Crimean resort. And suddenly, at at a point you least expected in the story, suddenly you've passed through the mirror and you're in this other world, the secret world of people's lives. I, I think everyone has a public life a private life and a secret life. And good books often contrast how we say one thing and we're thinking another. But Chekhov would show how there's this third place, this secret place, which often controls our actions, where we're actually concerned. The fundamental essence of what our lives are is dictated by who loves longer, who we love, why we love. Do we live or do we not live? These are the things that really concern Chekhov and really they're the questions that concern us all but I I felt we've suddenly find ourselves in an age where we're told these questions aren't so important and yet they're of the utmost importance to us all and that that was one of the the triggers for writing this book. His most famous short story is Lady with a Lapdog or Lady with a Dog as it's sometimes called where you have this lover at a Crimean resort as you say and he decides he's going to have an affair with a woman and much to his surprise and even horror, he ends up falling in love with her. And the end of the story, he understands that this secret self is unknown to him. He really doesn't understand himself. There's so much of himself that's a mystery to himself. 
This thought seems to run throughout your book. Yeah, and that, that Chekhov story's got the most beautiful conclusion where he writes, and he realised that though something was ending, nothing had even yet begun. It is that sense of how stories don't really begin at the beginning and end at the end, but how stories are endlessly circular, how we're trapped both in the past and the future always. It was that sense that was also strong for me through my life and which I wanted to capture in this book. During those long, hard COVID years, the question that seemed to concern more and more people was how to live, what is a good life, what is a bad life. And, and that, towards the end of COVID, we saw all these expressions of that from the, the lie flat movement in China to the great resignation in the West to people leaving the cities and, a, and one life for an idea of a different life in the regions. So many people left careers and looked for alternative things. And, and I thought this is really the question that, that matters to us. What, why It's not enough to exist. It is that we wish to live. And what is it to live? And I also felt during COVID, I, I, I realised I'd grown old. And I... Um, and uh, a <laughs> fairly obvious thought, really. <laughs> but, um, I realise that the world now, that we live in the autumn of things, that so much that I'd taken for granted, animals, birds, plants, fish, all these things were starting to vanish and we don't really notice it. It, it is as if a great revolution has happened, but it's a silent and an invisible revolution and it swept so much away that in my childhood I took for granted. And that really the only way to describe the great loss that we now face was to return to my childhood and try to describe what we had then. And what we had then wasn't just this extraordinary material world that still existed then, a natural world, but also there was a different spiritual world and moral world. And I wanted to try and return to that and understand that a little better. There's the enormous condescension of the present and we think we're free now and we think we know now. But uh, uh, perhaps we're just in the same prison with different bars and perhaps there are things we can learn if we go back to our past and, and think more clearly about it. And... I also wanted to write something that was a homage to my mother and father. Again, during COVID, I wanted to be close to them and they died several years before. And Did you want to hold them again? I wanted to hold them again, yeah. And I guess the only way I could do it was with words. Your earliest years were spent in a small mining town, Rosebury, on the west coast of Tasmania. What kind of a town was Rosebury back in the 1960s when you were little? I loved it. You know, there was this main street full of drunks and fights and people in gutters and <laughs> people shouting in the middle of the road at nobody into the wind. Um, and there were people from all over the world there, the, the refos, as they were then called, New Australians. And they'd come from Poland, what was then Yugoslavia, Greece, what was then Czechoslovakia, Germany, Italy. And... These seemingly ordinary people imprinted upon them were the great movements of global history in the 20th century. Fascism, Bolshevism, revolution, uh, that witness towns vanish, nations vanish. Holocaust, famine, all those things. All those things. And there they were, seemingly at the end of the world, in a place that nobody valued. But imprinted on them were the great events of, uh, and the great facts of world history and they might only be in their mid-30s and there they were either single men as labourers or trying to raise young families and, uh, and as a child at once you're not really conscious of it and yet you absorb all of it and at the same time this little wound of a town, this rough wound of a town was in this great wilderness which today we call the Tarkine, and which is today much, much reduced compared to what it was then. But as a child, you could wander out into this world 
and you immediately got a sense that the measure of all things is not man-made. The most extraordinary things in that world were the natural world. And it was extraordinarily powerful, and it was much more powerful than man. And, and again, I reached the age I'm now, and I realised most people grow up now in places where the measure of all things is man-made, where the greatest of all things is man-made. But I grew up in a world where this ancient Gondwana land remnant rainforest was the most extraordinary thing in my childhood. You know, some of the oldest living things on Earth were just up on Mount Reed, an ancient human pine stand, I think 13,000 years old. But it was dynamic. It moved. It moved and you, you would go places where there'd been a mining town 20 years before and already the, the rainforest was claiming it back. And you had a sense that you were but a fragment of something and there was a humility about living there. There's relief in that knowledge for some strange reason, isn't there? The, well, I think the immense solipsism that we are forced to live with now where... Um, Everything is measured by the way you seek to commercialise yourself or have yourself commercialised through technologies on, on phones and computers. It leads inevitably to the depressions and epidemics of loneliness and sadness we see. To know that you exist as part of something vast and extraordinary is a comfort. To think you're but one is to lead inevitably to sadness. You know, there's been a, an extraordinary transition in the last 30 years towards living in great urban spaces, you know, the rise of the megacities and so on. There's a massive transfer of population into huge cities around the world that's taken place. And people now grow up in these, these cities autistic to nature. They have no contact with it and it creates a false sense of our relationship with the world and with each other, and that's what I mean about this silent, invisible revolution that sort of changed our world. And we don't have names for who led it. They're no Lenins or Maos or Hermanes. They're nameless CEOs and economists and politicians. But they destroyed something, and we live now with the consequences of the terrible destruction. So in looking back to your wanting to hold your parents and the times in which they lived and how you remember them. You write about them quite a bit. Arch and Helen, your mum and dad? Yeah. Arch and Helen. They're so different. It's so clear how different they were. You're, you write about your dad who kept his distance from the world after he returned from the war. And your mum who was so vibrant and in, engaged in it. How were they alike, though? How were your mum and dad alike? What values did they hold in common? Well, I, I think for them to live was to believe in love. And love was closely allied in their world with kindness and goodness. And they practised that love and they fought for that love. And I think in the face of a, a meaningless universe, they asserted this illusion that love mattered until in the end their idea of love triumphed and it did matter and it did have meaning. You know, it's easy to see those ideas as naive, but when I look at the power of their love, not just for each other, but for, I was one of six children, but for their children, for all their, their friends and their, their larger families, I see that the naivety would be all mine to think that's naive. It was a form of magic and they were the magicians and they created something extraordinary through this assertion constantly of the idea of love. Was there something in the fact that your father had seen the worst of the world, there's no doubt about that, working on the Burma Death Railway, that refused to be cynical? How do you see that now? I, more I, as I get older, the more I realise cynicism is actually a form of sadness and weakness, really. How do you see that in your dad, his refusal or, in fact, his inability to be cynical about human nature? Well, I, I think cynicism is sort of the new naivety and it's a sort of beardless uh, naivety. <laughs> I, I mean, he had seen the very worst of things in the prisoner of war camps. But over the course of his life afterwards, he reflected on it and he slowly distilled it really into an idea of, of love. That was how 
he came to, to view his experience until in the end he lost all memory of the mud and then the violence. Finally, he didn't even remember the violence. He only remembered the good people did to each other and for each other because he's thought of that as the only significant thing that mattered in their lives at that time. You write that he was a good reader and there are too few of those in the world. What, what kind of things could your dad glean by his daily diet of uh, esteemed journal like the Launceston Examiner? What, what kind of things could he glean from that? Well, he loved the Launceston Examiner. I mean, he, he, um, he read these journals of despairing quality, the, the Launceston <laughs> Examiner and the Hobart Mercury. And uh, he, would, he would read them cover to cover. He found them tragicomic, you know? whether it was a report on the, the ESC Football League or the, um, the In Memoriam columns he particularly loved. And he, he said one day there was more wisdom to be found in the Mercury's In Memoriam columns than in a, a book of poetry. And he'd read these, the, the, these great inscriptions out and they, they were at once immensely funny and also deeply moving. And I, I, it made me think, you don't have to be a good writer you can be a terrible writer, but if you've got good readers, you, you, you can actually prosper. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, in, fact, in fact, I had an idea. <laughs> this might actually be you and I, Richard. Uh, this might be the sole basis of our success. The, um, I was actually going to write this novel once about a really bad writer who, for various reasons, he dies and he gets picked up by very gifted people because they need to have a great national writer and they celebrate him. They write these wonderful um, essays and articles about him until in the end he becomes a national institution and over the time his very banal sayings and phrases become part of the nation's language and <laughs> treasures until in the end this worst of writers becomes a linchpin of the nation's language. And I think all this is possible. My father taught me all these things. <laughs> but he also, I should add, he read a lot of poetry. He committed it to memory. But he always had apposite quotes about different things. And his parents, my grandparents, had been illiterate. And um, he was the only one in his family to get to high school. And I think he understood the liberating power and the magic, because it is a magic in those 26 abstract symbols and the power they have if you have enough skill with them to summon the universe. And the, he understood the written word could be liberating if you had it and oppressive if you didn't have it. He grew up in Cleveland, which people here would know, but it's a little bush hamlet in the midlands of Tasmania and his father was a railway ganger. It was intensely poor. Mrs Barker, one of the little hamlet's few residents, once went into Launceston on the train and saw ice cream for the first time and she was so entranced she bought seven ice cream cones and put them in a handbag and <laughs> took them back on the train to Cleveland for the family. It was, it was that sort of place, you know. Um, I've completely lost my train of thought with that stuff. <laughs> Let me ask you another question in any case. Uh, you were speaking before about how you wanted to go back to that world you were familiar with where quantifying and monetizing everything wasn't such a thing. What was your parents' attitude towards money, what it was good for and what it was not good for? Oh, they were deeply suspicious, I'd have to say, Richard, and um, we didn't have a lot, so that sort of uh, that gave us even more reason to be suspicious. I mean, they weren't fools. They recognised its value. But my father said, money's like shit. If you pile it up, it stinks. If you spread it around, you can grow something good with it. <laughs> and, at, and at his funeral, this, this dignified African gentleman came up to me and he was at the funeral and I had no idea who he was. And no one had any idea who he was. They were recent arrivals, new, new Australians. And my father had been paying their power bills for the last few years. So he saw money had real value. And I think a lot of people, I think all these things I'm talking about were common to people then. The, 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 my parents weren't 
extraordinary people, except in that way there are no actual ordinary people. All people are extraordinary. But they felt money wasn't the measure of life and is never the measure of us. It is not life. And unfortunately, we live in a world now where, where we may believe money is the measure of all things. And, and with it, an idea of numbers, that the world can be divined, understood and governed through the use of numbers. And that's why we're enthralled to ideas of our society advancing simply through mathematical formulas that we call GDP or things like this. And they bring great damage to us. And these are actually very recent fictions that have been invented to justify governments and states. But they do us immense damage. And, and we need to um, find a way of viewing our world that's larger and not restricted to this myth that only numbers, money and so on are the way we should understand ourselves. Like I said, your father survived the Burma Death Railway, which could have been a fact that only crept up on you, I suppose, in dribs and drabs as a kid. We never knew he was in the camps for many, many years. You know, I remember seeing Bridge on the River Kwai. We had no idea that had anything to do with my father. Um, there was a movie called King Rat, which was an American film set in the Changi prisoner of war camp, and I wanted to watch it, and my father refused. This was in the, the 60s, and it was very unlike him. And he said it wasn't like that, because the, the idea of King Rat is that a criminal robs and steals and through his robbing and stealing rises to become the leader of the camp and it's a very american idea it's an idea of the individual rorting the system and rising and he said that's not what it was like it's a slander upon the truth of it isn't it yeah the the truth of it in the australian camps or the certainly the australian camp my father was in he was one of weary dunlop's thousand was that they came together and the officers, for some strange reason, the Japanese paid them a certain small stipend. But in the English camps, for example, the officers did no work, kept the money, bought food on the black market and survived while the men perished. My father used to say how the, the English died like flies because they maintained their class system. But in this camp under Dunlop, the officers pulled their money and the money was used to buy drugs and food for the sick and the officers worked in the hospital and to improve the camp and so on and everyone pulled together and a lot more of the Australians survived in consequence. And the lesson of all that that he taught us was the measure of any society is not whether the strong prosper the success of any society is the extent to which they help their weakest and poorest and stand by them in hard times. And that was the lesson of the camps. Living in this family home in Rosebury, it was not only your mum, your dad and the kids, but your mum's mother, who you knew as Mate, which I assume was short for Mater or something. Or, uh, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. nicknames in the family, weren't there? Yeah, no, it was a, a nickname sort of family. Um, yeah, you, you said before we went on, she sounded like something out of Tennessee Williams. And she was a bit. She was a woman of inevitable poverty, as widows were <laughs> in that time, and innumerable hat boxes and pretensions. And uh, when we travelled anywhere, she'd have the front seat with the hat boxes and there'd be six of us in the back seat and on the parcel shelf. And, but I loved her very much. Um, she was one of 13. She was the granddaughter of an Irish convict who'd been a, a political convict. He'd been a member of a Gaelic secret society, the White Boys, and she was very ashamed of that. She and her family used to always talk about how they were from free settler stock and... Um, that carry on about the grand families of the Midlands as though we had some connection. One of my uncles said they would have fed us beer through a shitty rag. They didn't care less about us, you know. And, uh, but but in, in my grandmother's worldview, we had to pretend that we had something in common, you know. 
But what her and her family had done is that they had reinvented themselves, not as the grandchildren of convicts, but as people of some standing, of which they weren't. But it was important and necessary to them to do that, to have some dignity. And I didn't understand that till long after her death, but I can see that it was a necessary way of asserting some dignity, and I suppose we all do that in different ways. One of the ways she used to assert her dignity was through her breakfast routine that you were intimately involved in. Can you just describe what your grandmother's breakfast routine was like? Well, she had a bedroom, which none of... She had the only single bedroom in the house. We were all piled on top of each other elsewhere. And um, my father was incredibly respectful of us, so she more or less lived with us for the best part of... 20, 30 years, and um, she would ring a little bell in the morning and we used to have to run in with toast, but it was not to be too hot or too cold and punky, as it was called. And if she deemed it burnt, the bell would ring again. We'd have to run in and take it back out. Uh, And meanwhile, my mother, who was desperately trying to feed six children, uh, look after my father, who was a sick man from the war, And also sometimes we'd have cousins. So one time there were seven cousins come to live because an aunt had taken ill, the six children, and everyone went down with chicken pox. (laughs) And and they're still mate ringing a bell. The toast is going punky, you know. Podcast and broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. My family on both sides were were clans and so there were always people passing through and there was always another relative and uh, even if they weren't relatives, you you would normally assume they were. As they say, the most confusing day in Tasmania's Father's Day. You you never quite know, you know. It's... um, it's, uh... Not that I want to cast those sort of spells. We were a very respectable family. My grandmother would roll over in a grave at that joke. And, uh, how, how did mate your grandmother treat her daughter, your mother? Oh, well, I, I think it was one of those old sort of, you know, that there was a lot of Irishness about it. And I, I think she, she was seen to exist to serve her mother. That was very hard on my mother. I've seen that happen quite a lot, actually, where the older mother, the widowed grandmother, makes a kind of a servant out of her grown-up daughter who's still got a family to run. Yeah, when I was younger, I, I, I resented it, but, but then you look back and her husband died relatively young, my grandfather, and she was in her 50s, widowed, and with a tiny pension, and she had no, nowhere to live and no options. So she largely lived with us, sometimes with some of her uh, her other children, my, my uncles and aunts, but, you know, she had to rely on the charity of her children. That, that was her destiny. And um, she, she had a stroke in her mid-50s and being a Catholic family, everyone prayed that she would come through this and, and indeed she did and she remained for... till she was 99. But she'd had... Um, she'd actually... She kept lying about her age, saying she, was, saying she was a year younger than what she was because her marriage had, had begun with an illicit union and the, the first child had threatened to be out of wedlock, my, my, my uncle. So she had to lie about her age forever after. And we wondered what would happen if she got to 100 and she got the telegram from the Queen and she'd have to say the palace had made a dreadful mistake. You know? in order to maintain our respectable standing. But she was a very dignified woman, and for some reason, because she had far more interesting grandchildren than than me, but she took a shine to me, and she used to tell me all these stories. And they were marvellous stories about 
the world she came from. And it was to me she finally told this story that she thought perhaps her grandfather had been a convict. And then when we checked it up, we found out that he was and that, in fact, he'd been this Irish political prisoner. And then, of course, she denied it all. And um, uh, But, I mean, she was a really interesting, vital woman. But they were different times. How about your mum? When you think of your mum and looking at her through your child's eyes in her domain in the house, what, what images do you have of your mother? My mother was vibrant, lively... And, and very capable woman, you know. She was a woman of enthusiasms and passions, but, you know, in another life she would have raced cars or run corporations, I don't know. She, she was full of vigour, but in those days she was restricted to the house. And, again, it would be easy to demean that. And, and I mean, looking back, it was cruel for a woman. I mean, she, she really was a very able, bright woman, who, who was restricted to this being a housewife. But do you still see that as a good life? Or she saw it as a good life? What I see now is that I think it is an extraordinary achievement in those circumstances to find meaning and dignity and purpose. And she did all those things. She had, in many ways, a remarkable life. And that's how she saw it. It's not to say that was how things should be, but it, there's a, as we were talking about earlier, there is this condescension of the present and we forget that we're just unfree in different ways and the battle in any, no matter what time you're born into, is to somehow find dignity and meaning given the oppressions you live under. But always we think we're the only ones that live in the free world. But we are caged too. It's just that the bars are invisible to us at this moment. And so I, I so deeply admire her and her courage. One of the things she was managing was a kid who was growing slowly more deaf, and that kid was you when you were little. Do you remember the idea that hearing was receding from you? Or is your earliest memories of a muffled world? Well, in Rosebury, there was just an alcohol... I mean, having said I love Rosebury, it wasn't without its deficiencies, and one was the medical services were... <laughs> so the, the doctor was an alcoholic, and... Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I just had a very simple problem, but it, it went unrectified and um, worsened and worsened. I, I didn't notice I was getting deaf. I noticed that people couldn't understand me, and I couldn't understand them. Was it affecting your speech then? Yeah, my speech became affected. And then my, you know, everything sort of fell apart a bit for me. And, and what did people conclude about you intellectually as your speech started to fall apart? Well, they started to think I was a bit simple. And, uh, you know, I mean, not an impression that has entirely vanished over the years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, um, but, but I learnt that, um, I think I write in the book, as you were written upon, you learn to read people. And so you, you, you become much more perceptive about who people are and why people treat people the way they do. And you recognise small signals from people in a way perhaps I wouldn't have uh, if I hadn't gone deaf. That's one of my favourite lines in the whole book. As you learn that you are written upon, you learn to read people. That's, that's very, very true. But was, was there a kind of a freedom in escaping the world of lather, talk, 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 talk for a while when you were a kid? Uh, I remember just pretty off time. I, I had a lot of pain and um, I was um, confused by things. Uh, but I, I guess it, ex it would explain why the written word became more and more important to me because uh, that was an aspect of the world that I could find meaning in and which I began to try and express myself in very early. So... I actually decided I was going to be a writer before I could write, which is a very odd thing. And I, I used to be embarrassed about telling people this. But I used to make little books to send to my big sister, Mary, who I think is here tonight. Um, and she was at Teachers College in Launceston, which when you lived in Rosebury seemed like Shanghai, you know? <laughs> uh, it was a sort of amazing... Dinner, iniquity, metropolis of unknown yeah, pleasures yeah. and opium smokers That's right. and... 
cabarets. So, so in my mind, my sister's reclining in an opium den with a long stem pipe <laughs> when she receives this package from my mother, and which is this little book made out of pink pad paper, which my mother would bind with two staples and some black electrical tape down the side. And I would have the sort of pictures of words and sentences and some little drawings, and this would be the story. And really what I was doing, I think now looking back, was I was trying to smuggle out to my sister in the opium den in Launceston <laughs> this story, uh, just a message of love, to say I loved her and we missed her and we thought of her every day. And I've always thought ever since then that, um, you know, I was recently asked in an interview, you know, what, what's my favourite first line in a novel? And I, I have no idea because the words of a book are nothing. It, it is the drift of it that is everything. And that's why some of the greatest books aren't necessarily well written. There is a soul to a book and it is that soul that ultimately matters and it is that soul that moves us and makes that book have, have meaning and wonder to us. You were always worried, you write, that your dad would die at any minute because he seemed afflicted, particularly by stomach ulcers. We now know could be cured by a course of antibiotics. But he ended up living into his late 90s, like just about everyone in your family, it seems. Yeah, they... <laughs> veterans, veterans, people who've been through something traumatic in their youth, they tend to keep storm until they hit their 80s if they live so long, and then they want to talk. Was that your dad? He, he, he did. Having said that um, I wasn't aware much, he wasn't one of these ones who didn't talk. He, he did talk and um, he was willing to answer any of your questions. His stories were of a particular type. He, he didn't dwell on the savagery or the brutality of it. It was stories of, of solace and kindness and, and, and of humour and of humour. And I, I think perhaps when human beings have everything taken off them uh, and are there naked against complete power. The, the last defence humanity has is humour. So a lot of his stories were very funny, you know. But I did grow up with this one story that was sort of resonant of how his, one of his best friends was beaten to death in front of everybody by the Japanese guards for, for no reason. And that, that, that story reverberated through my childhood. The thing about the ulcer was it was a euphemism for a whole lot of other things. He, he clearly had what you'd now call post-traumatic stress. He was battling really to hold his job and, you know, do his job well. He was a school teacher and raise his family and... And his mother-in-law too. And his mother-in-law and mate, yeah, and the punky toast and... Um, but the stories, were, the, his stories were to the end that in the worst situations, kindness matters, humour matters, goodness matters. They were the effect I took from his stories. And above all, you must always help your fellow. You must help. You must stand by your fellow. Tell me about the day some Japanese women came to visit him. Oh, this was extraordinary. So... Some very brave Japanese women had started collecting evidence of Japanese war crimes in Japan. They were middle-aged women and they were led by an older woman who'd lived through the firebombing of Tokyo in which more people died than died in the bombing of Hiroshima. They had come under a lot of attack from far-right Japanese nationalists. They'd done quite a bit of work on the notorious Unit 731, which was responsible for a whole range of atrocities in China. And they came to Australia and wanted to speak to prisoners of war, and, uh, or ex-prisoners of war, and a lot wouldn't speak to them. And my father agreed to speak to them, and they came to our house, and all the family gathered. So I, I was an adult by then, and so, and all my brothers and sisters were there, all adults, with their families, so with the grandchildren. And um, these women came with ceremony, with dignity, and with, 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 above all, with grace. 
And there was a reserve on their part and there was a reserve on my father's part. They said sorry. That, that they were people who were not responsible for the crimes of the Japanese state in the 1930s and 1940s. They had nothing to do with it. I said sorry to my father. I, I can't tell you how much that meant. Uh, uh, it, it was, uh, uh, I find it, it almost moves me to tears telling you about it now. It was an extraordinary thing and it, it, was a, it was a very good thing. And it happened about the same time as our national government refused to say sorry to the Aboriginal people of our country for the stealing of their children over many generations. And I think that the power of saying sorry, the power of saying yes, these are extraordinary acts that have great consequence, as do the acts of saying no or refusing to say sorry, and they can poison societies equally. The most, uh, I, I struggle to find the words for this part of your book, the most compelling, uh, terrifying part of your book is from an episode from when you were 21 years old. We've been friends a long while now, you and I. We've been friends for about 25 years or something, I think. And I didn't know this story about you because you've never spoken of it and it's taking you all this time to write about it. It's uh, from an episode from when you were 21 and you were a river guide. And you were guiding a party of rafters down the Franklin River. You were trapped in your kayak with cascading water pounding around your head for hours and hours before you were rescued. It's a strange thing to read out about a friend, to read about an ordeal that he's gone through that's like that. What was it like to write that story finally, Richard? Well, it was um, strange and difficult because I, I don't normally talk about it unless I'm on the river and we get to that point and sometimes the people I'm with ask about it, but that's it. And to write about it, each day it was like going down this long dark tunnel and I would find a few things that happened and I'd have to drag them back to the surface and then I'd have to look at them and try and describe them as best I could but they were still happening. All the other memories I talk about in the book are diffuse and actually, you, you know, when writing the other memories, I, I write how the whole years I have no memory of and then I have odd strange memories that may never even have happened that I may have imagined. The nature of this memory was utterly different because the moment I forced my eyes to look at it, I was there. And so then the way I dealt with it was just to try and force myself to stare at it long enough that I could describe it. So it was like sketching or, uh, you know, having a, a real-life model. And I would sketch myself, but it was happening to me now at the same time. And after two or three hours, I, could, I, I had to stop and then I'd have to go back down that tunnel and put it back and then I would be all right. And then the next day, I'd go back down the tunnel again and I'd get a little bit more out and I'd have to look at myself again and be there again. I was surprised because I don't think about it. But when I had to think about it, I realised that it never stopped. And what do you mean it never stopped? There's a beautiful essay I was sent by uh, a young Yolngu woman from northeast Arnhem Land called Sienna Stubbs. And it's about how in Yolngu they have, well, we have three tenses, the past, the present, the future, and they have this fourth tense, which is about how things that are happening now also happened a thousand years ago and will be happening a thousand years in the future. So if you're building a fish trap in this bay today, you're also building it a thousand years ago 
and you're also building it a thousand years in the future. And it's a very beautiful idea because it makes you think fundamentally differently about the land and people, how you think about your responsibilities to what has been and your responsibilities to what will be. And also it is a comfort because it places you again in the universe in time in a way where uh, your existence is never lost, but it is also never large. And it was the experience I have of being in that air pocket, in that rapid for several hours, it was the same thing, that it, it, that, except it's a terrible experience, that I was there dying for a time because I, it, it became so... Um, it reached a point where I was... I realised I was leaving. And, 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 and um, that sense that I'd left my body and that I'd gone to somewhere else has never left me. And when I was rescued and I returned, I returned to someone else and the world was different ever after. And after that, Nothing mattered very much to me except the people I loved, the world around me, which I found very beautiful in a way I'd never found it beautiful before. And that's what was real. And everything else was an illusion. Those things were real and mattered, but nothing else did. And that's what I've written my books out of that feeling. Why do you keep going back to that place, that actual spot on the Franklin River, and what do you do when you get there? Well, I try and get past it as quickly <laughs> as possible. <laughs> uh, I don't like it. <laughs> it's, but, uh, I'm like, uh, before I go, I mean, I go down the Franklin most years, and some of my friends who I do that with are here tonight, they're very dear to me. But I'm like an old clock that needs to be reset. It's important to me to return there and it allows me to remind me that I live and why I live and what it is to live. And my father's struggle was the same thing. He came back from the war and the first thing he did was he got a train round all the places you could get a train to in Tasmania. And I imagine him going to the beaches and to the forests and to the little towns and going to the battered kitchens and the broken backyards of his friends and family and knowing he was to live and he could live and these were good and beautiful things. That's how I felt. Some years ago, you went with the BBC crew back to Rosebury to see the old family home. They were doing a documentary on you. What state was the family home in when you got there? Oh, well, it was, um, it was overgrown with rainforest and uh, people were still living in it. And um, <laughs> was, was this Rosebury, and, um, which was sort of endearing. And it, it's up a bit of a hill. So I'm there with this BBC crew and um, they've flown across the world to make this documentary because they think I'm somebody and there we are back in Rosebury, <laughs> which was a culture shock, I'd have to say to them. We, and there's a bloke working up in the carport, you know, behind some myrtles and man ferns. He, he's got a buzzsaw going or something. So I yell up, excuse me, um, I'm with the television crew, can we just come and film here. He said, you can fuck off. <laughs> this was a little humiliating. I'd been... Um... He said, who are you anyway? I said, I'm... I used to live here. My name's Richard Flanagan. He goes, yeah, well, you can fuck off. <laughs> That's what you can get if you go to Rosemary. Not, not one for two f-offs. 
we flew in by seaplane, landed on the rather sad impoundment that now sits over the Pyman River, and we got a lift down with Mick the Publican, who was moonlighting as a taxi driver in a battered old Hilux. And the compere of the BBC documentaries, this very eminent Englishman, he's one of three BBC controllers, and it was very funny. He, so we're there with, in Mick the Publican's Hilux covered in dog hair and God knows what, you, you know, crushed UDL cans. And, <laughs> and he leans over the camera gear and he goes, have you seen the new stop art? <laughs> <laughs> Stoppard and, uh, I mean, when Rosencrantz and Guildenstein walked the London stages in 1967, I, I was watching people burrowing out of pubs with broken glass in their face, you know. It was a, it was a different theatre there. You said one of the reasons why you wanted to write this book was to hold your parents. Were you able to do that? Have you got a, some kind of timeless sense of your mum and dad now with you? I actually feel closer to them now, not, not because of the book, but I think of them more uh, and I do feel their presence more. Yeah, I feel, I feel them closer to me and I, I hope they forgive me my jokes here about them tonight. Yeah. Richard, what a pleasure this conversation has been. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Richard Flanagan. Thank you. Thank you. listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. <laughs> <laughs>